Please be aware that this episode may be particularly upsetting as it involves the murder of a teenager. Caitlin Sudbury was murdered on January 28, 2008, and this is her mother's story. Hi, Bobby. It's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hi, Kelly. This is Bobby from Katie's Way. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Phoenix, Arizona is the fifth most populous city in the nation and is also the largest U.S. city that also serves as a state capital. They get more sun here than any other major U.S. city with 320 days. Famed rocker Alice Cooper attended high school in Phoenix and went to Cortez High School. And Marilyn Monroe claimed her favorite pool to be in Phoenix at the Arizona Baltimore, where notably Irving Berlin wrote White Christmas, a holiday favorite and timeless song. The Hotel San Carlos was featured in the opening scene of Alfred Hitchcock's film Psycho in 1960. In 1990, the Grand Prix was held in Phoenix as the opening race of the Formula One World Championships. Katie was a very intelligent girl and loved the arts and English. She was a well-rounded, sweet and caring young girl who enjoyed so many things. Her parents always encouraged her to try new things, and Katie knew that she could stop them at any time, giving her the freedom to choose to try whatever she was interested in, knowing she would have her parents' support if she didn't like it and wanted to stop. We're just going to start back to when Katie was a little baby. What was she like as a baby? Oh, she was fun. She was a lot of fun. Um, she was very quiet and very independent. She could definitely make her own fun by herself. But also, too, she really loved playing with her little sister, uh, Virginia, and then her older brothers and sister. Uh, she mixed in really well with them. She just was a jovial. She had a lot of fun. And they really enjoyed uh, playing together and everything. And you know, she was very much kind of tomboyish, so she would, like, try to keep up with the boys. This was, you know, really cute and everything like that. And um, we used to live in a cul-de-sac, and, you know, they had all kinds of free run in there, and they would just they would just have fun and really enjoy it. And she was always in that mix with every single one of them, and she really had a special relationship with each of her brothers and sisters. Oh, that's lovely. So she was a very easygoing child then who just got along with all personality types. Oh, absolutely. She was really roll-off-the-shoulder type of person. She definitely an old soul. She was very, um, very considerate of others. 
just so it's just an all around sweet, sweet person. And what types of things did she like to do as she got older when she was a child? What did she, what, what kind of things did she find fun? Oh, she, she was very athletic. So she was in sports, uh, basketball, soccer, um, you know, just anything to keep them going. They used to go hiking with me, you know, outdoorsy, oh, camping. We love camping and all of that. Uh, we take family vacations and, you know, she likes to go to the ocean. So we go down to Rocky Point a lot. You know, just, just really outdoorsy stuff. But there again, she was also very artsy. So she had this really innate ability to draw, create, do some really uh, neat art. Uh, there's this one artwork, uh, it's all blacked out, and the background is like a shiny. And so what she did is she scratched out a Shotokan tiger for me because I was, I was studying martial arts and everything. And so, you know, I've got that on my wall and just very, um, uh, had a lot of ability. And she was definitely someone to try stuff. You know, she would try something and because she, she knew. You know, she could try it. If she liked it, great. She could do it again. If she didn't, she didn't have to ever do it again. But she loved, you know, trying new things, cooking, um, you know, being in the kitchen and everything like that. So she was just an all-around person that just really wanted to experience life. Wow, it sounds like it. And and with this artwork she did, not only was she artistic, but she was thoughtful and considerate to think of what you were interested in at the time. And then she goes and does something related to that for you. Oh, so much so. Yeah. And they, she actually studied martial arts with me for a bit, too. Oh, so, wow. You know, just, yeah, just anything, you know, and anything to keep us busy and out of trouble. And what was she like in school? Oh, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. All of her teachers will tell you just, just that, that student that they wish they had, you know, so many times over. You know what I mean? She, she sat, she listened, she paid attention. She was all about learning, soaking it up. She was really, really smart to, to the point that she was helping her little sister on some of her studies. Uh, you know, I, it, it was, she put effort into it, but it was, she just made it look easy as far as any kind of school work or anything like that. And her teachers did. They absolutely loved her. These loving parents wanted their children to know that the world was open to them and they could do and be anything they wanted. They were a busy household with five kids, and as they all grew, five teens that were often hard to gather together at the same time with the active lives they all led. But whenever they were all at home together, Katie would organize them all to be sure they spent the time as a family, playing games. So it sounds like your family is really close. Yeah, yeah, um... When the kids were younger, yes, unfortunately, due to circumstances, there there is, um, you know, for everything that we've been through, the closeness has kind of um, pulled away a little bit, but we're working on pulling back to it. When Katie was 16 years old, she met a boy, the typical tale of high school youngsters. He was new to the area, and Katie found herself hanging out with him and their friends more and more until a relationship developed. And soon, they were dating. Katie's younger sister was more than pleased to come home and let their parents know that Katie had a boyfriend. They asked her about this, and she said, yes, it's true, I do. So these parents, who were involved and loving and responsible, invited him over 
to their home so they could meet him and begin to develop a relationship. My husband and I, you know, we, we sit down and we talk to them and, you know, kind of just ask him a few questions, try to find out, you know, some of his background, like, you know, has he lived in the area long? And where does he live? You know, what's he looking at as far as, you know, uh, as, you know, after high school and everything like that. And he was very forthcoming, you know, he, Described where he lived in the area and that he was new, and you know, he was excited about you know, graduating high school and wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do, but you know, he that, that's a 16 year old for you, you know. So we kind of just took it in stride and he had the conversation with us and everything. And we watched as they continued to date, and it did, it, it looked uh, pretty innocent and everything. Um, they were 16, neither one of them had a license, so anytime they wanted to really go somewhere, we had to drop them off, and so we dropped them at the mall or the movies, and, you know, he would open doors for her, he'd let her out, he'd hold her hand, it was all very cute. Then, you know, a couple months in, Virginia, our Katie's little sister, our youngest child, uh, she had expressed to us that there were some issues with Danny, you know, that uh, Danny was not being nice to Katie, and she was seeing you know, some things go on and stuff like that. And she's kind of, you know, not feeling comfortable with Daniel and his treatment of Katie. Katie's mom and dad began to speak with her about this relationship, explaining how she should be treated and to be sure she understood that they were there for her. They didn't want to force her to make any decisions, knowing that if someone is not ready to end things, they will just keep going back to the person. But instead treating her with respect, and giving her the necessary facts about abusive relationships and being clear that they didn't like what they were seeing. One day, Katie broke the house rules of no one being allowed over when the parents weren't home. She had a few friends over. They were hanging out, playing video games. Katie's younger sister was contacted by the boyfriend later in the day and told to go look on MySpace the social media of the time. She was shocked to see a bandana that was hers that should have still been in her bedroom where she had left it, being burned outside their home in a video. She told her parents, and of course they were very upset about the house rules being broken, of course, but also not understanding how the boyfriend got into the younger sister's bedroom to steal one of her belongings, to then burn it and have her go watch it being burned. They knew that this was a very disturbing behavior. Yeah, we saw that as a threat, and that's when we uh, really sat Katie down and said, okay, what happened here? Because I can't believe for five seconds that Katie actually would have allowed that or permitted that in any way, you know what I mean? So, you know, she did get in trouble because she had them over at the house and they shouldn't have been there, okay? She got grounded for that, but by the same token, we were talking to her and we were like, okay, what happened here? How did he get gain access to Virginia's room and then be able to go out there and everything? And she, I honestly believe she really, truly didn't know. I think she was just playing Xbox and not paying attention to them. And so we told her, look, you know what? He's really, he's not allowed here anymore because that's, that's, that's a bona fide threat and we're not going to have that happening. And so, you know, and, and at the same time, we also told her, we're not going to tell you to stop seeing him, but what we are going to do is, you know, help you understand that what's going on here is not appropriate in 
any environment. They really started to take an even more outspoken role with Katie about how this relationship seemed like it was potentially abusive. Their older son had a very responsible girlfriend who was very much a part of their family, and Katie liked and trusted her. Katie's parents asked the girlfriend to please start speaking with Katie as well. Hearing something from someone who is a peer and someone you look up to can be far more effective sometimes than hearing it from mom and dad. They were doing everything they could to be sure their daughter was hearing the message that was so important. This relationship did not seem healthy. As the boyfriend's behavior was escalating, they could see that this was becoming a very urgent situation. Katie and her boyfriend had been together for 10 months at this point, quite a long relationship for teenagers. Katie's mom, Bobby, heard him screaming at her over the phone one day. She could hear it while her daughter was walking by her, and she looked at Katie and said, You have the power. Katie looked back at her, and Bobby said, You can just hang up. Katie's parents headed off on vacation. And while they were gone, the siblings and the girlfriend had a mini intervention type talk with Katie, explaining the perils of being in this relationship as they were all very worried. When Katie's parents came back home, they were elated, although cautiously optimistic, to hear that Katie and her boyfriend had broken up. Sure enough, three weeks later, we get a text from Katie. She can't tell us to her to our faces because I'm I'm sure her little heart was just breaking. But we get a text from her, and she says he's threatened to kill himself. I can't leave him now. How does a poor little sixteen-year-old so, child deal with that? I mean, come on that that is just heartbreaking yeah. for someone to have to to have to experience it. It's really hard. Oh. Uh, oh. It is. And, you know, and by this time, she's actually 17 now, you know, because her birthday's in July. So she turned 17 and now she's got this heavy weight on her shoulder. And the thing about it is, is, is this is a tactic that is used by abusive people quite often. They will threaten to hurt themselves or hurt others in order to get the um, victim to come back to them. And with that, what they're doing is very, they're, they're psychologically you know, messing them over and manipulating them because basically when an abuser does that, what they're doing is they're temporarily empowering them. Okay. So it's like handing candy to a baby, you know, after you've taken that candy away from them. So in this instance, we're talking about power and control. So in these relationships, you have, you know, one person where they're taking all the power and control from that other person. So that other person is powerless. Okay, but now you're going to offer them a little bit of power so you can reel them back in. Okay, and that's what that whole thing is. Now, I'm not going to say ever to take a a suicidal threat lightly. Not at all. As a matter of fact, what I'm going to say is call the authorities and let the authorities know. Sweet Katie wanted nothing more than to help this boy. You can feel such empathy for this teen girl and the plight she was going through. She could not and should not carry this burden alone. This family was trying so hard to be sure Katie knew that they were there. 
and trying to the best of their abilities to keep the situation under control. They took steps to help their loving daughter. They tried their best. They had faith that they would get through to their bright girl, never expecting things to get to the point they did. No one expects it. Finally, Katie did end the relationship on her own, coming to terms with the reality of her situation and knowing this is not what she wanted in life. She was excited about graduating from high school and going to college. Her boyfriend wanted none of that, and he did not want Katie to pursue her goals either, follow her dreams, live her life. Katie and her mother Bobby were out shopping on the day Bobby found out about the breakup. Inwardly, she was jumping for joy, knowing that as it came from Katie, it was her decision, her choice to end the relationship. It would likely be for real this time. Now, Katie could move forward without the controlling boyfriend she had been trying to please and help. She could recapture her happy life, a life with college in the fall, a life where their wonderful, precious daughter would follow her dreams and achieve her goals. The goals Katie would certainly fulfill being such a bright and determined student, dedicated to her studies, a life full of happiness, a life where Katie would be safe. I was just like so excited to hear that. I can't even tell you we had the best day. We carried on, we had lunch, and we did all kinds of stuff and everything. And, you know, it, it was just a really great day and all of that. And so, you know, we kind of carried on, but you could see that there was still a heavy weight on her shoulder. And what had happened was he was escalating. So he's texting her like crazy and saying really bad things, but then he's saying love her and he's all very mad, you know, from one extreme to the other and everything. And she comes to us and asks us, she says, you guys think I'm You know, and we were like, absolutely. So we changed her phone number. And just like that, and I am not kidding, he had that phone number within 24 hours. Oh, my goodness. And good for you for listening to your daughter, because that's another problem is often parents don't listen to what their children are telling them. It was school break, so Katie's family thought it best to send her out of state to visit family so she could be far away from the madness that was surrounding her and their family the fear they had all been feeling, the worry. Although Katie had broken things off with her boyfriend, Bobby was still on alert and knew that the longer they didn't see each other, the more probable they may not get back together. The easier it would be on Katie. New breakups are always difficult, but particularly when it is an abusive one. Bobby didn't want Katie to have to worry about running into him or about the situation, period. As always, she wanted to teach her daughter and empower her, help her to learn how to navigate in the world, making good decisions. But she also wanted to protect her. At the end of Katie's stay with her family, they spoke to her about finishing her semester of school there give Katie the space both physically and emotionally to focus on school and fun and being a teen 
to be able to hang out in safety and enjoy her final semester of high school. Her parents told her the family would all go there to see her graduate high school. But understandably, Katie wanted to come home and be in her own high school to finish up her last semester, be with her friends. She was 17 years old and wanted to be involved in all of the school activities during her graduating year. Katie had done nothing wrong and should not have to hide away because of someone else's actions. She insisted, and she came back. Within a week of her return to school, Katie called her dad very upset. Her ex-boyfriend had assaulted her in the hallway. He had ripped her backpack from her and stole her bank card and license. He was ranting and raving. The police were called, but they put it off as teenage romance, and these things happen. They said there was no witness that will come forward, even though her aggressor had her cards on him. Wasn't that clear enough? But this was not enough in the police's mind. Their attitude of this not being serious enough is such a shame. The school suspended him. The very first day he was back in school after his suspension, he assaulted Katie again, grabbing her, yelling at her. This time, Katie took heed of the police's words from the previous violation and was sure to look around and see who had witnessed the assault. The police were called, and the family was sure there would be an arrest this time. But there wasn't. Even with this being a second assault, even with a witness, the police again chalked it up to kids being kids. So uninformed of them, so ignorant. They did nothing, not even suggesting professionals get involved to give this guy some help that was so obviously needed. This time, the school expelled him, as they at least took the attacks very seriously. Now you're walking on pins and needles constantly. You know, what's going to, you know, and it's like, you know, but, okay, a couple of days after he suspended or expelled from the school, I get a call from um, Phoenix PD and uh, from a sergeant. He says, ma'am, you need to go get an order of protection for your daughter. And I said, okay, uh, why? What's going on here? You know, because he's been expelled. You know, he's not at the school anymore. We don't see him around or anything. So what's the deal? He said, well, we just realized that Daniel has threatened to kill your daughter and himself. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And this came from an encrypted message from his mother, from Daniel's mother. Okay. Apparently, she was in and out of the system for, you know, just various offenses. And on probation and whatnot, so she could have nothing to do with Daniel. But apparently, Daniel called her and let her know that his, his, what his intents were. Now, when she called the school, I was told she called the school under an assumed name and didn't give the name of Daniel Kate. You know what I mean? So they had to deduce it down and figure out what who was she talking about. You don't have to tell me twice. I went to the courthouse. I filled out the paperwork. I was going to get that order of protection because I had not just two police reports. I actually had a third police report from a um, business where he was attacking her at the business and the police were called out. Okay. So I've got three police reports 
said, I can list on this order of protection of where he's been very volatile with her and everything. And she does tell me he has access to guns. So I checked that box. But the fact of the matter is the law here in Arizona did not cover dating or former dating relationships as valid relationship guidelines to get an order of protection. That is awful. That is absolutely awful and, and heartbreaking. My goodness. Yeah, it was like every every oh. obstacle that could have been thrown in our way was. And, you know, I mean, it was it was just, again, that attitude, just a couple kids having an issue, it's going to blow over. Me and my husband were like, henny, penny, the sky is falling and all of that, oh. which, you know, that's the last thing we were and everything. And so feeling defeated, we go on home. And what the judge did do is he signed off on an, off on an injunction against harassment, which really isn't that helpful. You know, it basically says, don't harass this person anymore. Oh. And that's it. Oh, yeah. Like you know, it doesn't do say anything. stay away from the person, you know, or anything like that. You know, and the other problem was with that is when we got the injunction against harassment, there was no direction or clear direction for us. And we were in such a state of unrest that, you know, it was hard for us to see a lot of things. Do you know what I mean? So nobody explained to us that we had to go to a process server and have them serve the injunction against harassment. Okay. I thought I could serve it because back in the day, that's how you could, you know, you could have just anybody serve it, but no, you have to hire a process server now. So I'm trolling around the neighborhood trying to find him, you know, so I can serve in this injunction against harassment and act like it's in order of protection. You know what I mean? So that he leaves her alone and knows that we're serious about this. Right. right. It wouldn't have been valid. Oh. It would have been just, you know, nothing. You know what I mean? So in any event, I never find him. This was all happening in a matter of weeks. The escalation in such a short time, things getting more and more serious. By the end of January, only one month after all of this abuse had started to get worse, there was no word from him. He stopped coming around. He seemed to have accepted the breakup. He seemed to understand that he should no longer contact Katie. Katie's younger sister got a text saying he would never hurt her. The family was beginning to feel some relief. Then a friend texted Katie asking her why was she doing this to him. Now that hurts. Victim blaming. Youth need more education on the seriousness of abuse and being a friend to someone going through challenging times. Imagine the heartache a family feels when their daughter, whom they have been working so hard to protect, helping her by giving her the tools she can use to get out of an abusive relationship, encouraging her to see how unhealthy the relationship is and how deserving of better she is, being sure she had a safety plan in place in case she needed help and support, speaking to her continuously so she knew she had their support, having siblings who were close and also encouraging her to get out of the relationship, and a sibling's girlfriend as well, communicating how unhealthy the relationship was, doing everything they knew to do, knowing that their beautiful 17-year-old daughter was capable, intelligent, kind, loving, thinking she could help her troubled and neglected boyfriend, thinking that her warmth and love would be enough to change his disturbing behavior, eventually understanding 
She was not equipped, nor was it her responsibility to fix him. And coming to the incredibly difficult and mature decision to end the relationship. And still all of that not being enough. This is the story of Caitlin Sudbury's murder. Katie's mom said, let's talk about a safety plan. What to do if he does something. Katie said, mom, he won't do anything. On this particular day, Katie was excited about being in school with her friends during their very last semester. Her mom said, you can stay home if you want. But Katie was worried about her classes, her marks, her studies. She was a conscientious student. And I looked at her and I said, okay. I said, well then, I love you and have a great day. And she looked at me and she said, I love you too, Mom. And I am, I am so thankful that I got to hear those words from her because I had no idea it would be the last time I would ever hear from her. Word of mouth is such a powerful tool. So please help us to reach as many listeners as possible and tell a friend and let them know that we can be found on their favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our Facebook group, Morning the Murdered. I want to send a big thank you out there to all of our supporters. You can donate to the Morning the Murdered podcast through Patreon or PayPal at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your generosity. And now back to the show. Bobby went to work and her younger daughter was at home as she wasn't feeling well that day. I was at work. Midday rolls around about 12. 1215 and Mookie was or excuse me Virginia which we call her Mookie she wasn't feeling well so she stayed home from school that day and um I believe she was in the eighth grade and she stayed home from school that day and uh and she called me about 1215 and she said noon 1215 something like that she says mom she goes there's a lot of cop cars outside and I have no idea what's going on and they were literally, all the cop cars were surrounding our neighbor's house, our next door neighbor. Okay. okay. I was like, okay, let me call the next door neighbor, which her name was Sam. We called her Sam. I said, let me call Sam, find out what's going on. And Sam and Jerry were like pseudo grandparents for uh, Virginia and Katie. Okay. So we were very, very close. And so I called up Sam and I said, hey, Sam, I said, uh, Virginia tells me that there's a lot of person on that area what, what's going on you know and she says shots were fired and two people were down oh my and I said oh okay um have you seen Katie because she was supposed she that was when she'd be on her way home from school her last class ended at like eleven forty. oh my goodness and you're at work and hearing so, this oh my goodness yeah and I'm like, okay, because um, I knew Katie was going to end up walking up on that. You know what I mean? And I didn't want her traumatized or anything like that. And, um, but also in the back of my head, I know what we've been going through, you know. 
Sam told me, no, I, no, I haven't seen her. And I'm just like, okay, you know who was involved. And then I explained to Sam what was going on. Now, may, people may ask, if you guys are so close, why didn't Sam and Jerry know what was going on? Just because we just didn't, I don't know, we just didn't talk to everybody about it. You know what I mean? I guess we wanted to respect Katie's privacy and whatnot. You know what I'm saying? And you never think something like this is going to spin this far out of control. Bobby was also calling Katie, but there was no answer. She called again. Again, there was no answer. She didn't want Katie to walk home and see the police commotion and be worried. She wanted to let her know that something was happening. She wanted her to answer for another reason as well. Bobby was having a terrible feeling about what was really going on just outside of her home. Her boss came to see her, and upon seeing the state of her, she asked what was wrong. Bobby explained that two people had been shot outside her home, and they were both down. Her boss said to go home and see for yourself what is happening. Bobby didn't want to go home, because then she would have to face whatever it was. It would be real. She left and headed home, making it there in record time. There were police everywhere. Only to find out later that one of the victims was Katie and the other one was Daniel. Oh my goodness. So how did you find out that it was your daughter that had been murdered then? Um, a detective came over and started talking to me and she was asking me some questions and uh, she asked me for a picture and everything and that really upset me and so I told Virginia I said you know what you need to call your dad and tell him to get home right now that's when they told us that um, Katie was one of the victims and first thing I asked is is she going to be okay and they said no and my reaction was I threw my water bottle at the detective because I did not want to hear that and it's the worst thing in the world and what was even worse was Hearing my husband fall to pieces, it was absolutely devastating. It ripped his heart out, and he's really dealing well with the situation, but, I mean, it, to hear a father cry for the loss of his daughter in such a brutal way is just so saddening, and it's something I cannot unhear or unsee ever. Their younger daughter was just on the other side of the front door as this was happening. On the other side of the crime scene. Katie had been innocently walking home from school to safety. Her sanctuary. Her home. She was about to enter their carport when she saw him. Her tortured ex-boyfriend. Her killer. Katie, however, didn't run toward their house or into their yard where the dogs were or into the carport. Instead, she ran away from the house because she knew her sister was inside and she knew how this gun-wielding person, her ex-boyfriend, didn't like her sister because she was so vocal about the abuse and her need for her sister's safety. In the past, the sister had already gone outside during verbal tirades on her sister that were happening on their lawn and said to the ex-boyfriend to get away. Katie's mom firmly believes Katie drew him away from there. She was saving her sister's life. An act of bravery. 
a hero. You know, the thing about Daniel, too, which is really, really sad as well, is that his world was imploding, okay? This is not an excuse. This is a fact, okay? Um, what he did was heinous and wrong and, and just so inappropriate, and he is, you know, he holds responsibility for that. But I also hold his family responsible, too. Right. Because had his family taken care of him and parented him and guided him properly, his world wouldn't have been imploding like that. But instead, he got nothing from that. He, he, you know, he was not guided properly, you know, and, and he, was, he was actually being led down a very bad road, you know, with the family. And as much as, you know, I work with young people to discover these kinds of issues and work through them, I also work with parents and adults because kids need to be able to go to someone and talk about these issues and expect that person to help guide them through it. Daniel needed somebody in his life that could guide him. And when Katie ended the relationship with him, he felt like, he truly felt like that was the end of his world. Did he die as well in this tragedy? Yes, as soon as uh, he killed her, he turned the gun on himself. It is so very important to take teenagers' problems seriously. Their emotions are real and powerful and raw. The police in particular need to take these cases seriously. It is abuse, plain and simple. Not to be scoffed at as simple children playing around, looking at teenage breakups as silly little affairs. Teens aren't ready to handle these emotions. They don't have the proper decision-making skills. They just don't have the maturity. Often, they don't know how to react and heal after a breakup. Adults have a hard time, for goodness sake. Teens need a safe place to be able to talk about their real feelings and have people to turn to. Their parents, ideally, but if not them, someone. When police are called, you would hope it would be them, there, ready to help, give proper advice and guidance and support, point them in the direction of available resources, make arrests when necessary or appropriate. Teens, as they are still emotionally immature, can easily make poor decisions in the moment and can be reactive and impulsive. Parents also should probably not say things like, it's all right, just get over it, move on after a breakup. Instead, try to talk about their feelings with them or be sure there is an adult in their lives that they can trust and speak to relative, friend, or professional when needed. Keep an eye out for signs of depression and changes in their personality and intervene, get them help. It is not a sign of weakness to need help. It is only a weakness to not acknowledge you need it. What are your feelings toward the killer? Um, empathy. I have a lot of empathy for him. I have forgiven him and, you know, I needed to do that in order to start Katie's way right. because um, if I hadn't forgive him, forgiven him, I would probably be like a very angry and bitter mess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through Katie's way, we have uh, created a model uh, called what we call peace, patience, empathy, acceptance, caring, equality as a uh, basis for healthy relationships and everything. And, you know, if you're not in a place, a peaceful place, 
it's hard. It, you're not going to be able to come up with something about peace. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was real important for me to, you know, work through that forgiveness and move forward so that it didn't consume me or my family and that we could move forward and help others, which was very, which has been very, very therapeutic for us. If I had to do it all over again, instead of attacking the situation, I feel like I would have tried to embrace him first and talk to him and maybe try to guide him, realizing he didn't have that guidance. What advice uh, would you give to listeners who might be going through something like this? What are the steps that you would recommend that they follow immediately after a tragedy like this? Well, one thing they can do that, you know, to get them started is they can go to our website, katiesway.org. Uh, K-A-I-T-Y-S-W-A-Y dot O-R-G. We have a lot of information out there as to a warning sign for potentially abusive people versus people that are abusive. You know, so red flags and warning signs. We also have information about safety signing. We have information about how to have a healthy relationship and stuff like that. So there's a lot of great information there. They can get started there, but I would strongly suggest that they want to take action, okay? Uh, they can contact us if they like to, but if they don't live in the Phoenix area or or Arizona, it might be best if they uh, find a an advocate in their area. So, and advocates are a lot of organizations have advocates, um, domestic violence organizations, as well as shelters, but police departments, um, oftentimes cities, they have an advocacy. You know, and if anybody needs any help finding an advocate, we can certainly help with that. Um, I would also strongly suggest, uh, because, well, let me talk about the advocate for a minute. Advocates, they know this stuff inwards, inwards and outwards. They know the laws, or, or they should know the laws and understand them and everything. So, you know, that's why it's important to get an advocate involved, because they can really help you navigate through the system, because it can be very daunting. And then beyond the advocate, I would strongly suggest making a safety plan, which the advocate would probably help them with that. Make a safety plan. You know, if an order of protection, you know, is something that needs to be done, the advocate can help give them some guidance and direction in that. You know, uh, and then there's just, you know, different things that you can do beyond that. But, you know, definitely looking out for yourself. Um, I've actually talked to families and worked with families where one of the questions I'll ask him is, I don't know that it'll get to this, but if it does, do you have any friends or family that live out of state? Because what we want to do is we want to try to get the victim as far from the abuser as they can. You know, counseling is definitely something I would seriously consider, even though you may feel like the child isn't showing that they've been traumatized or anything like that. I would seriously consider at least a couple of sessions, only because there are going to be triggers eventually. And they have to learn how to deal with those triggers, you know, from the abuser and stuff like that. You know, either triggers that will remind them of the abuser or triggers that will traumatize them. We did also get a law passed with the help of the Arizona Coalition to End Sexual and Domestic Domestic Violence. Uh, We got a law passed here in Arizona that's called Katie's Law, where now those in dating relationships have protection under the law. So that was passed in 2009. Oh, congratulations. That is something that is a, it, that is going to help so many other people. Good for you. How has the rest of your family, how are you doing? Um, you were talking earlier about 
not being as connected maybe as you once were. And do you feel that that started a lot because of the trauma that everyone suffered with the murder of your daughter? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I totally believe that that's when things started, you know, kind of falling away with a couple of our, well, our two daughters, Virginia and Yvonne, and um, our son, Daniel. We have a son named Daniel also. The three of them really struggled quite hard. Our son, RJ, he, um, he's a lot like my husband, you know, where they, they, they learn how to live with things and they, they, they respect you know, life and, and how things go and stuff like that. You know, they may not like it, but they, they understand, you know what I mean? Where the other three, they are still struggling with it. And unfortunately, um, our son, Daniel, he never, ever got over it and it continued to haunt him. And unfortunately he took his own life last September. Oh my goodness. So, oh, that is so tragic. I am absolutely devastated for you. That, that must have been so devastating to hear that news. Yeah, it 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 was. It's it's you know it's it's been a hard road. Bobby is out there helping others. I am always so impressed to see someone battle the horrible pain they are feeling from the loss of their child, the murder of their child, and direct it to something so positive. The sorrow Bobby feels and the agony she suffers is in no means diminished because of the amazing work she is doing to make the world a little safer. Her memories are still there and the tears come in waves, but her persistent need to educate people allows her to work hard and make a difference. And there she is, getting Katie's law passed, ensuring other people that are in an abusive, non-marital relationship can get different and better help than their family did and maybe save someone else's life. Good for you, Bobby. Good for you. You are an inspiration. Okay, so you take care and um, thank you again for being on the podcast. You do the same. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy, There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E. M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. 
Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.